Friends, our New Testament lesson today comes from Paul's second letter to Timothy, the first chapter, beginning with the first verse. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I am grateful to God whom I worship with a clear conscience as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Do not be ashamed, then, of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel relying on the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and for this reason, I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I have put my trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me, In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was on July 4th, 1826, that both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson died. The last surviving members of the so-called Founding Fathers, the two of them together with others, shaped much of this country as we know it. Now a little history review for all of us. Adams would go on to be our second president in 1797, with Jefferson serving as second in command. It was during this time that their political views, while once quite united, parted ways rather dramatically. Jefferson even became so frustrated by his friend's leadership that he began strategizing about the next election. And so the election of 1800 was a bitter campaign with both men saying terrible and slanderous things about one another. In the end, Jefferson won, but in the end... It also seemed that the tears in their friendship were were irreparable. 
In 1809, however, after both men had vacated the office, each of them expressed to others their desire to reach out to their old friend. And so Adams eventually broke the silence, sending Jefferson a letter in January of 1812, wishing Jefferson many happy New Year's to come. Jefferson wrote back, and the pair went on to share correspondence for 14 years, exchanging well over 300 letters, covering all manner of topics. It was on that faithful July 4th, In 1826, exactly 50 years after the Declaration of Independence, that John Adams, at 90 years old, uttered some of the most famous last words we know. Right before he died, he said, Thomas Jefferson survives. These words have etched themselves in history for what they contain, but... They've etched themselves in history perhaps even more because they're actually wrong. Adams couldn't possibly have known it at the time, but Thomas Jefferson had died five hours earlier. Last words can be fascinating. Beethoven, his last words were, Friends applaud. The comedy is finished. Winston Churchill, the elegant wartime orator, his last words, I am now bored with it all. And Thomas Edison, who changed the way we could see in the world, his last words offered something of a promise. It's very beautiful over there, he said. This second letter to Timothy is increasingly considered to be the Apostle Paul's last words. We read from the first chapter a few moments ago. In the fourth chapter, toward the end of the letter, Paul writes, I am already being poured out as a libation. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul knows he is dying. And he knows this may well be his last correspondence. He closes his letter saying, The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. But he begins this letter with a bit of a history lesson that hits close to home. I am reminded of your sincere faith, he writes. A faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now, I am sure, lives in you. If I understand it, what Paul is saying is that for most of us, faith doesn't simply fall out of the sky and land on us. There are stories of people who have that sort of experience, including Paul himself, but they are in the minority. And a problematic byproduct of these types of stories is that they are so spectacular that those of us without them sometimes wonder if our faith is lacking. So again, if I understand it correctly, what Paul is saying is that for most of us, we learn faith from one another. You know this model is true, 
in other parts of life. Think about starting kindergarten in a school that goes all the way through the eighth grade. You are the shortest, the youngest, and those hallways seem enormous. When I started school, eighth graders were all assigned a kindergarten buddy. My buddy's name was John, and I am still fairly certain I survived kindergarten only because of him. Or if you don't remember kindergarten, think about your first day at a new job. You don't even know what you don't know. That feeling is inevitable for all of us at some point. That's why so many organizations and corporations and schools use mentoring programs. You know how these work. Someone who knows the ropes walks alongside of someone with less experience, sharing insight and offering guidance. Mentoring is not a new practice, not by a long shot, but in the past two years, our understanding of mentoring has expanded. Now, Forbes, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal all report that those who have been mentors ought to consider finding one for themselves. And, they say, this is the key part, the mentor you find should be under 30 years old. Otherwise, their studies say, you run the risk of staying stagnant while your colleagues or your competitors move forward. Now there's science behind this. As we age, the neurons in our brains, they change shape and size, which ultimately means we learn at a slower rate. Our brains learn the fastest and with the greatest ease up until the age of 30. I am as delighted by this as you are. But there is a flip side, of course. As we age, we have the benefit of accumulating more wisdom and more information. The point is, we are learning that no one age or no one level of experience has the monopoly on knowledge. Everyone has something to teach someone else. We need each other to become our best, fullest selves. I have found this to be true when it comes to being the church as well. This past week, I imagine you read about it, the trial concluded for Amber Geiger, the former police officer who shot and killed her unarmed neighbor, Botham Jean, in his home. As soon as the verdict was read, Botham's 18-year-old brother, Brant, hugged his brother's killer and offered forgiveness. It was a remarkable moment. It really was. It went viral, and all sorts of Christians held that moment up as one we should all strive to emulate. And my initial response was exactly that. But then I started hearing from some of my preacher friends who are not white. They were begging their white preacher friends, which is to say they were begging me, not to talk about Brant's forgiveness without also mentioning Botham's mother, Allison, who offered a statement of her own. She said, What Brant did was cleanse his heart towards Amber. 
I do not want that to be misconstrued as a complete forgiveness of everybody. She went on to say that she admired her son, but that justice demands an examination of the systems that contributed to her older son's death, systems that the Dallas police chief herself says demand an internal investigation. Now please hear me carefully. It is maybe foolish of me to talk about this today, because I am still wrestling with it. I am still trying to figure out what this means, both for how I think and for how I live. I am still trying to figure out how forgiveness and justice live in tension with one another. So I was hesitant to bring this up today, but if we wait until we have all the answers before we talk about something, we will never actually talk about some of the things that matter most. And please hear this just as carefully. I do not mean to diminish that moment of forgiveness, not in the slightest. All I mean is to point out that I could see the forgiveness part of the story. That was easy for me to see. But I needed my preacher friends with black and brown skin to speak up and implore me to look further and to see things from their point of view. I needed them, and I still need them, to become a better and more careful and more faithful theologian and preacher. So there it is again. We need each other. No one has faith figured out all by themselves. No one has every answer. It is not possible. Last night, our confirmation class met for the first time. I am profoundly grateful for each one of them, and each one of them, each one of you, as some of you are out there, contributed something that only you could contribute. It was a very good first gathering. We had lots of questions, lots of learning, and lots of tacos. And without putting any one person on the spot, there was a lot of awkward silence in the room when I asked, why are you here? Why bother with confirmation? You may rest assured that parental pressure is still a highly motivating force in our world. And then there was this collective rush to say, no offense, we didn't mean to hurt your feelings. And I will tell you what I told them last night. That does not offend me at all. That does not hurt my feelings. And when I went through confirmation, let me assure you, I went for one reason, and it was my mother made me do it. And my mother made me do it because her mother made her do it. Now, obviously, at some point, faith became something that I cling to rather than something that was pressed upon me. But I would never have gotten to that point had someone not put me in the position to encounter it. 
I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. So hear this. There is faith in you. Even if you are not sure of it right now, the Apostle Paul is sure, and I am sure. There is faith in you, and at some point, when you need it most, you will reach deep down, and you will discover that something is there. And I suspect you will be grateful. And sometimes we really do only have faith because someone else did first. And sometimes we only have faith because someone else gave it to us. And sometimes we only have faith because someone else showed it to us. And sometimes we only have faith because someone insisted we consider a new way of looking at the world. And that is exactly as it ought to be. Faith is a gift that comes from God, but more often than not, human hands are the ones that offer it. And this idea, it is so central to who we are as Christians that Paul begins his final letter with it. So if you need encouragement, as Paul seems to think Timothy might, Paul knows that when your faith is unsteady, It helps to remember. Four times in the first six verses of this letter, Paul says, Remember. Remember those who taught you something of faith. Remember the story they taught you. Remember the love they showed you. Remember what has always been, and you will find the strength to face what is still yet to come. It's World Communion Sunday today. You've heard us say it already. It's a day when Christians throughout the world break bread and share the cup together. It is a day when all of us remember someone else's last words, or at least the last words that were spoken to his closest friends when they gathered for a last meal. This is my body, Jesus says, given for you. Take, eat, and remember. And this is my blood, Jesus says, shed for you. Take, eat, and remember. Now here's the tricky thing about World Communion Sunday. We all celebrate communion, but we don't all do it the same way, and we don't even all do it with the same understanding. Do we use bread or do we use wafers? Is it always bread or does it change into something else? Do we use wine or should we use juice? Does it stay juice or is it changed into something else? As a whole, Christians do not all believe the same thing about this meal. But in observing it years ago, William Sloan Coffin said that on this day, at this table, Christ is found not in the nouns, but in the verbs. This is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Take, eat, drink, remember. Remember that when it comes to faith, you do not have to know it all. 
It is not possible to know it all. We figure it out together. We make our way together. And if that's not the last word on the subject, it certainly is the lasting word. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.